everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Most popular art has structures that we may or may not be aware of as consumers and participants. Songs use verses and choruses. Paintings use certain perspectives and lightings. And stories, well, stories do something especially interesting. Hmm. Something that crosses beyond popular tropes, beyond even culture and time. Stories follow the hero's journey, and today we're along for the ride. <laughs> nice. So, um, we we talked yesterday about Obi Wan Kenobi, and um, part of that conversation um, was um, talking about the sort of the the journey that yeah. that heroes take. Yeah. And we've talked about heroes and villains in the past a little bit. Um, but I think that this is going to be particularly interesting. And there's a lot we could do a whole series of episodes on literary tropes and things. But yeah, yeah, um, I probably will. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, what is the hero's journey? According to Campbell, and I should make a number of just quick side references that you're familiar with, but people may not be. I think a lot of people encounter Joseph Campbell because. George Lucas talked about him a lot. I encountered him in a very different way, but I'll, we'll get to that later. So basically, he studied uh, mythologies in a, in a growing way as he was working toward uh, a doctorate and, and noticed through reading across many stories from many cultures. This is really simplifying, but he noticed, began to intuit patterns that seemed to exist. But he also was a very intellectual human being and, and realized that the patterns weren't simple and not reducible to one equation or formula. And, and that some elements of some of the stories sort of went backward or out of sequence with places on other parts of the planet. But ultimately worked out this this uh, the mono myth, uh, the mono myth, or a mono myth, uh, depending on who's talking, and uh, essentially the one myth that encapsulates all others. In other words, the one story pattern. And there are, and the whole thing worked out. I think seventeen steps, but really it can be reducible in simplistic terms to three steps. A call to adventure, a a going through difficulties, actually four steps, going through difficulties, uh, but getting aid, uh, achieving your goal, and then going back to your people. And there, there seem to speak to enough people in enough fields that it stuck. And people, I think, began to realize that uh, there are elements of recognizable, deep truth in this in this monomyth, but it also is problematic for a lot of other reasons. So we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. But yeah, I think that the thing that's interesting about um, the monomyth and about some of these other things is you and I were talking about it before the show. Um. There's these things that appeal to us on a level that we have a hard time sort of articulating or, or picking up on. Um, you know, in, in the intro, I said that, you know, songs have verses and choruses generally, right? You know, um, I I released a, a progressive sort of psychedelic song that was 19 minutes long, right? That didn't have any repeating <laughs> parts, yeah. um, which is an option, right? And that's the beauty of being human is that we have this creative potential to do um any any number of things but despite having that ability we gravitate towards this verse chorus format or we gravitate towards um you know having lighting from this angle and having the the focus of a painting being at, you know offset this amount and you know and in stories we have we gravitate towards this story pattern, right? And it, it philosophically, what's interesting about it, you know, we can, we're going to explore this from a literary perspective for sure. But the interesting philosophical part about it is, is asking the question, 
why? Why does this sort of thing appeal to us? Yeah. Um, so who was Joseph Campbell? A literature major like me. <laughs> not, not, I'm not, not associating myself that way, but it's still kind of fun for me. Uh, he was a scholar and a literature major who decided uh, whose experience took him to study across fields, interdisciplinary studies. And uh, he uh, art and, and psychology and storytelling and so on. And the, the short form is that he went to a lot of places and studied many things. One of his mentors was Heinrich, Heinrich Zimmer, who was a major mythologist of his time. And, and he immersed himself, Campbell did, in, in Jung, Jungian storytelling, Zimmer's views on mythology, and, and then all kinds of traditions. And as I understand it, I, I'm going back to my first experiences and stories being told to me about him uh, he he didn't finish his dissertation uh, because his committee his mentor said you can't do cross-disciplinary this way it's not going to work at the time in which he was doing this it, it wasn't uh, considered tenable but uh, when I encountered Joseph Campbell at college it was with an incredibly powerful religious studies teacher named Mary Stewart, who uh, changed the course of my life in my, in my studies with her and her colleagues, and first introduced me to the Campbell monomyth, and we were reading Campbell. And then some of my other teachers were taking me there, too, uh, in, in literature class and in, in religion class. In philosophy, and so it, it was inevitably becoming an interdisciplinary thing. I, I was even as a freshman and sophomore in college, I was realizing something's going on here. What I didn't realize at the time, because I hadn't cottoned on to what I wasn't aware enough, is that Joseph Campbell was teaching at Sarah Lawrence College uh, up through the early 1970s, hmm. and Sarah Lawrence College has had a pretty. Uh, I've, I've, there are all kinds of connections to that place for me uh, from a very different space because of uh, we're in Perry, New York, and and we have a Shakespeare troupe who has branched out to puppetry and other kinds of, of marvelous things that bring in international folks. And a number of the major uh, folks in, involved in building that group came from Sarah Lawrence College, uh, and 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 my second-born uh, now adult child went to uh, for a summer in, of study in theater at Sarah Lawrence College. So Sarah Lawrence just keeps coming up in my life, and I realized uh, in rethinking all this stuff that I came so close I could have almost if it had just been a few years difference I might have encountered Joseph Campbell, but. One could even, at, back in the day, watch him on interviews. Hmm. And then, of course, Star Wars uh, happened and George Lucas was redoing this. And then Bill Moyers, who was a journalist uh, commentator in the 80s, particularly, did a series with Joseph Campbell. And Campbell released many other books. Uh, so, so his influence just keeps rippling out for me. I haven't gone to the the dark stuff yet, but I, <laughs> but but I think it's it's uh, it's been re it's been remarkable for me, not so much for some of the women in my life, but for me. So, what can you tell us about the hero with a thousand faces? So that that sort of seminal work of of his. Yeah. That it is, it is ex at once accessible and uh, challenging. That laying out the monomyth in in narrative terms, uh, I found really helpful in this class that that I was starting out with. Uh, but the charts, <laughs> they are really useful in some ways. But when you start charting out. Variance and subvariance and and these seventeen steps, it begins to feel contrived, 
how many steps can something be and still be a pattern for everything? Well, how many steps are there in a recipe? I suppose one could ask. Uh, so, I uh, so the so your question is, what do you make of it? Um, can you sort of like give us the background of a of a hero with a thousand faces? Right. Okay. So, so you have the the call to action. A hero, and and there's been much argument that a hero can be uh, male, female, non-binary. It doesn't have to be male. We always default to that, but we don't necessarily have to default to that, right? Uh, and there have been lots of responses back with it. But so you have the call to actually living a normal, ordinary life in a little place, nondescript place perhaps, or just a mundane life. And then something calls to you, something speaks to you, something says, go and do this. <laughs> Well, now that might be a supernatural uh, extru- intrusion. It it might be a psychological aha, uh-huh, whatever it is. And so then then you either have the opportunity to say nope, <laughs> and sometimes that happens, or you say all right, yeah, I can go do this. And and so the call then leads to the departure, preparing yourself to leave this little mundane uh, life pattern that you've had to go out and. And do things, and and as you're journeying along the path, um, maybe you're thinking, "Well, this isn't so hard. <laughs> I'm out here adventuring. I've got my backpack and my walking staff, and and I'm going to go do this thing, whatever it is." And you and I have talked about it in terms of art, but we'll get to that. Uh, but then you have to go into this uh, special world. You have to be initiated into becoming the hero, and that's not easy. Mm. It's not supposed to be easy. This is where movies sometimes, because of the nature of movies, have to be uh, relatively short. Uh, that you don't get this sense of how difficult sometimes it is to leave the other, the ordinary world. And the task that you're picking up is going to fundamentally alter you. Okay, so that's that's the initiation part. Um and then you get altered, you do your thing, and then you go back. That's the three steps. Departure, initiation, return. Right. But that's not nearly as interesting as the other steps. Yeah. So am I over-talking this? No, no, I think okay. that you're you're good. Yeah, I'll I'll kind of quickly give them the, the 17 steps. So it's okay. the call to adventure, which yep. you covered. Yep. The refusal of the call. Nope, um, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> which you have the option to say, but really you don't have the option to... <laughs> it would be a short book, right? So... Um, <laughs> You, you can refuse the call, but you're going to get dragged into it. Um, and then the third is supernatural aid, you know, having some ally that comes along to help you. Um, crossing of the first threshold, which is, you know, that... Into idea, the other's space. Right, becoming the hero. Um, five is the belly of the whale. So it, when you cross into the other space, you're not ready for it. So you sort of end up, you know, getting knocked down. Yeah. The road of trials, which is all of sort of that interesting bits in the middle of the book, right? The meeting with the goddess, um, which this is sort of like another supernatural aid, right? right. In some regards. Yes. Um, woman is temptress. Do you think that there's anything um, that we can say about that that's not overtly chauvinistic or sexist? Or can that can this sort of step be adapted in a way? It can be adapted. It can be adapted to things metaphorically, but it still can tramp and understandably uh, tramp into zones that really put some people off. I I, I couldn't I can be reasonably intelligent, and not, nor could you, and, and not see why that would happen. But it could. It it it, it can be things like uh, uh, anything which uh, really. Uh, wants to take you away from the current path you're on. Hmm. And so, in some ways, I, I think that having thought about this and reread Hero a number of times over the years, I, I think that this has been so narrowly uh, reducible to the sexist thing that really it says, oh, I've got, I've got another call. i got to go do this. I'll be back later to do this. It's, a lot of people are like that. I'm into this interesting thing, but oh, shiny object. I've got to go yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, and I think that a lot of storytellers have done a good job adapting that in different ways. Um, Let's see, money. Yeah. Or whatever. 
there's the forbidden treasure, right? Yeah. You can go in to do this thing, but stay away from this, right? Or that sort of thing. All right. Then there's um, Atonement with the Father, hmm. um, which is an interesting kind of step. Uh, apotheosis. You want to? Apotheosis is when the, the really the, the 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 cleansing final part of the transition happens. You, the the hero comes to understand the world, life, the the journey, uh, all of those things in a way that was not possible back at the beginning, and and therefore having come to that cannot be the person the hero was anymore. So the apotheosis it can be this highly spiritual moment. It 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 can be the moment when all the the X-Men powers kick in. You know, that's a, oh, I can do this. Obi-Wan Kenobi or find finds out that he can manipulate things. Anything like that. Gotcha. The ultimate boon, which is a sort of achieving um Something, right? Having something after the quest. Though. The boon, when I first encountered that, I thought, that, that's an interesting word, although my vocabulary was increasing. Um, it, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's achieving the goal, but it's also taking or getting ready to take this thing that you've achieved. Now, it might be an object like the grail it, it's, or, or a sword or something. It, it, it might be a, a, a realization that is so profound that it'll, it's dangerous. Hmm. But you have to prepare to take it back because part of your job on the quest is to go back. Refusal of return, which is interesting, uh, right? Because you can have a hero who wasn't interested in entering this magical world. Then once he's there and once he's become the hero, now he doesn't want to go back to ordinary life, right. which is sort of an understandable thing, right? If you've you've entered this supernatural world and you've become the hero, going back to regular life doesn't seem like that would be really all, all that appealing. Exactly, yeah. The magic flight, which is... Mm. Um, well, this is when you 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 take this understanding or this whole... Uh, this is Prometheus. Uh, you know, stealing fire from his fellow gods or demigods and giving it... To, to humans, and there's going to be a price to pay for that. Uh, this is g- grabbing the golden egg from the giant and Jack and the Beanstalk, running back down to Earth. Mm. You know, um, so yeah, yeah, you're you're running away with what you found. <laughs> uh, rescue from without. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't that interesting. Okay, so so you to get back home. Sometimes you need extra help again. Which is, I just think that's part of what attracted me to all this. There are moments when you're on your own and isolated, but there are moments when you need other people, and it's a storytelling recognition of that. Yeah, there's rarely any stories where the hero is just on his own solving all of the world's problems. Right, right. right, You know, there's always somebody that that has help. The crossing of and return, the threshold. the master of two worlds. What is that as far as a, as a storytelling? Um, you know what? There, there's something. There's a phrase that I that I find really linguistically spot on. It's been used for known a long time. It's called code code switching hmm. in language. You go home for Thanksgiving, and your brothers and sisters. Maybe you talk one way, but then in your workplace, you talk another way, and so on. That's the master of two worlds. I, I cannot not be the person that I was once I've achieved this boon. Hmm. But I also need to get along in the place that I was. Right. This, you know, and, and for me, this part, the, the profundity of the story, and pardon, this may sound strange to people unless you've experienced this, but to re- to to go through a true a true education. Uh, there was a f- very famous novelist who had a very famous title of a book that said, you can't go home again. Hmm. And that's very much about this stuff. You can go back to the, the geographical space. You cannot be the person you were because you're not supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, you, like you said, that's the profound part of, of storytelling. And I think that is where it crosses over into real life and where the philosophy comes in is is that idea right is that home or this physical space this origin point all these things 
um, they continue to exist, um, but you can't go home again. You, 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 you can go back, but it's not the place that it was. And, and psychologically. And you're not the person that you were. Right? And this philosophically takes us right back to one of our, uh, one of our anchors, which is the ship of Theseus. Mm. When you grow up and go out, <laughs> if you're aware, awake, and, and having experiences, you cannot be the same person unless you totally choose to ignore everything that is happening to you. Decide that, uh, nope, I'm going to always be the way I always was because everything is always the way it always was. That's a refusal of the call. Uh, to, to live in the, ma- be the master of two worlds is to say, well, okay, yeah, I can have some materiality in my life, but I also cannot ignore the, the spiritual or philosophical new place and where i went Mm. it it has to affect me yeah and that's a that's sort of a pop culture trope right there's always this point in in uh you know popular movies where um a character's friends say you've changed man (laughs) like like it's a bad thing right Uh, you know he goes back to the place that he came from and and the character changed you know yes i have isn't it great (laughs) but it isn't the lot that you go back and a lot of people when you go back don't necessarily think it's so great and it's a very complicated thing in real life right because um you know depending on the trials that you've been through and and the things that you've encountered um this the last stage is freedom to live, right? Mm. And um, not everybody achieves that. Right. Um, and I, you know, for me, thinking about it personally, right? It's military experience, right? By all accounts, I had a very sheltered military career, right? Like I didn't, I never went anywhere, I never did anything, right? It was everything was in a training environment, essentially. I still had a lot of powerful experiences. There's a lot of people that did do very big very heroic things in very distant lands and came back and um, didn't have a freedom to live, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, weren't able to master both worlds. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you look at the suicide rate in the military and you see that, you know, not all of these heroes had the end to the journey the way that everybody else does. And some do, but it's, it's almost like you get kicked back to an earlier phase, right? Now you're going through a whole different set of trials, a whole different journey um, based off of where you ended up. Right. And that's sort of cyclical nature of it is another thing that that is profound in this, right? The hero's journey um, in a storytelling context is, is a nice closed loop. Yeah. But for us in real life, um, you know, after we've gone through an experience and we get back, um, that's not just the end of it. We, we're always constantly starting new journeys. We're all, every one of us is on several journeys at once. Right? That's right. It's messy. Uh, uh, and I, I, you, you couldn't have said that better. I, and you brought up the suicide statistics and think of the suicide statistics. Well, first, the very fact that we have suicide statistics indicates that there are are difficulties, profound difficulties. Uh, but for, for any group, for any, for the military, um, for people who have been abused, for, for trans kids and so on and so on, something goes horribly wrong because people are rejected or people have had such difficult experiences and they want to be able to be embraced as who they are upon their return and often that's on the people to whom they return and and sometimes it's on the fact of the experience is just too much to, to go back in in mythology and again i know it's, it's, it's mythology and i know i've said this before i talk about christian mythology not as if it's false to anybody but it's stories of a very deep supernatural experience but I, I there's a there's a, a set of stories in norse mythology about the black cauldron and the black cauldron is it contains the mead the drink of poetry and only the gods and even not all of them can sip it and and, and if a human untrained unready whatever sips the mead of poetry they go mad they can no longer 
function within the spaces that they have been accustomed to. And I think, um, I, as I've said uh, all the way through my teaching career, I, I, I would never tell a soldier or a firefighter, anyone, I attempt to tell them what they've experienced. That's that's the worst kind of arrogance. But I listened, and I could put it in contexts that I think could help gain a different understanding through the teaching. But there are things that one goes through that wound us. In Arthurian mythology, there's the wounded king. He never heals. That wound us so so deeply that we can't entirely return. Hmm. And and so, yeah, it's not a, the, the, this is the part of the Campbelli and the monomist stuff that I sometimes think got watered down too much. There, there is, and you've probably read of this too, there's a, uh, there was a guidebook, I think it's seven pages or something like that, that, that was put out by uh, uh, people who were uh, trying to help other people do screenwriting. So let's have the the encapsulated version of the monomyth and just use that as a use that as a way of creating a story for the screen. The very fact of using it is is uh, reverse engineering, right? <laughs> if you're profound thinking, oh well, now I've got to have this step, or now I've got to have this step, and and that becomes the primary thing. Well, I've got to do this. Then you're all art is contrivance and artifice anyway. That's the word art, <laughs> but but that becomes so plastic and and uh, inorganic that I think it's doomed to fail. Yeah, yeah, and this is where art is is very interesting, right? Because um, we've talked about it before, right? So we study art and we see these tropes that appear in different art forms. And as humans, we have the ability to defy them or we have the ability to just make art and somehow it conforms to them. Or we have the ability to see them and put ourselves within the box of, of using them and try to see what we can create within mm -hmm. that box. Mm -hmm. And that is a very dangerous line, right? Because um, if you say... I'm going to write a song and it's going to go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. Um, there's a very, very high percentage chance that's going to be a boring song. <laughs> so you have to find other ways to make it interesting. Or if you say, I'm going to write a song and it's going to have a drum set, one bass, one guitar, and one vocal. Again, it has the potential to be very boring unless you start introducing new effects or you know, you start playing chords on the bass or something strange, right? Yep. Same thing with storytelling. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm writing a story right now that you're reading for me, right? Part of my preparation for that story was looking at these steps and writing a story according to these steps, kind of the way that you said, but then at each step, subverting some of the tropes and mixing some of the things around. Mm -hmm. So while the story that I'm writing is influenced essentially at its core influenced by the steps um it's almost become a subversive piece in some yes, regard that's where the art is happening you are not saying oh well i can't stray here because i have to do anytime you yes you master the steps in order to then violate the rules always in writing that's what we th you mm. learn the rules so that you can then bust them <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's true of any profession there's some rules you don't violate, <clears throat> except to your utter, utter peril. But of course, you're going to find new ways of using a hammer properly, or, or what you know, any any up to very complicated. The more complicated, the more likely that you're going to innovate, even without even realizing that you're innovating. Yeah, it, that's that's the fascinating part of human endeavor, right? Is that we. When we've talked about, we talk about this on the podcast a lot. We, our minds want to develop patterns. They want to develop categories. They want to put things in boxes. Yep. But then it's just our nature to, as soon as we have these things established, want to branch out and learn and develop things that are outside of them. And then 
we have this constant struggle within us all the time to mm-hmm. want to adhere to the categories, but also to see the crossover between them. And it's it's this it, it's this eternal struggle. This is reflected to me. What you just said, that just the light bulb went off. Ding. This is what's reflected, I think, in quantum physics. Uh, the idea that light is a packet or light is a wave. Hmm. Now, last week I attended a wedding of uh, some of the Shake on the Lake people, the, the Shakespeare troupe, uh, to, uh, the marvelous, marvelous people, and I, dear friends, and I, and one of the people speaking, they had this, they, they had, they developed a ritual, their own ritual. And that's part of what Campbell's about too, is ritualizing to some extent. And there were 10 moments of speaking or reading poetry or singing. And at the end, the person says, you may now take a step forward to each other. And so there were 10 steps where they finally arrived hmm. together. And the first speaker, somebody I had the chance to, to talk with last year, is a, a writer who, uh, and a, a science man. And, and he, he spoke about how light can be packet or light can be a particle or wave depending on how you observe it. And he was talking about what a, what a marriage is and what a relationship is. Sometimes it's particles and <laughs> sometimes it's a wave. And what you just said, I think is, is that I think this is where science becomes mythic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you look at, we've, I think that we've mentioned this before too. Um, some of the greatest scientists are also people who have, um, incredible imaginations, right? Yeah. Because yeah. philosophy is also not a closed loop, right? Philosophy is sort of the foundation of science. But then once you continue to build on science, you get to a point where science can't answer the questions that are beyond what we have the technology or the information to provide us with. Yep. And then philosophy comes back. And these scientists who are at the cutting edge of science and what they do, um, a lot of them are drawing on philosophy and some of the artistic side of philosophy to say, okay, well, here's the pure mathematics, um, but an interpretation of that might be this. This is what happened before the universe, or this is what life would look like on a different planet, or hmm. these hmm. different things. And I think for a lay person, you know, it's easy to just sort of um, look at that and say, okay, well, you know, the, all right, whatever. But if you think about, well, this is this is really coming from, uh, you know, a, a standpoint of this guy's looking at mathematics, you know, or, or trying to interpret uh, an analytical or abstract thing and, and then create something that is coherent and, and relatable. That's an act of of art. It's an it's an interdisciplinary thing. It is. It's, that is what science writing or writing in the sciences is about. Oh, back to English one hundred two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, step back there. But yeah, because if you're making it accessible, as you're, this is what you're saying. You're 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 necessarily sublimating or putting aside or reducing some elements of the complexity in order to make it more understandable for people. And in doing that, you're leaving some parts out or you're, again, compressing or reducing for a greater good uh, utility, presumably. Yeah. And I mean, you see that reflected in, in Campbell's history, right? He was interdisciplinary. Um that that's the way mine is too, right? My bachelor's degree is interdisciplinary studies. And a lot of people are embarrassed of that, right? To me, that's that's like a mark of of high pride for me. It's like, yeah, my mm-hmm. bachelor's degree is in interdisciplinary studies because what that allowed me to do is I was able to get a master's degree in education and I'm able to get a PhD in psychology, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm able to, to go to these different stepping stones and, and uh, you know, the gatekeepers make me jump through some hoops because they don't like that, right? right. They say, well, no, you should have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a doctorate all in the same field. Right. But they have a different view of things, right? They, well, they're is, looking at it and saying a PhD is, is a very specialized degree. And I'm saying, no, it's not. I'm saying I'm doing a PhD in psychology. You better believe I'm going to draw on everything possible right. that is related to human psychology, but isn't the structured field of psychology, because that's how you make 
developments and progress in fields, right? Part of this is uh, the quan. It's, it's a quandary. It is a, a collision in some ways, perhaps out of necessity. But the the intense professionalization of education in in the past hundred years, which has been toward utter specialization, particularly probably in the past seventy years. So that you are so removed from other fields, you know an amazing amount of stuff and, and, and useful stuff and an authority in that one thing. But that, and that's good. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, and, and sometimes everything right. But if everyone were that specialized, then it would be very hard to have conversation. Uh, and I think that, and that's where the interdisciplinary uh, aspects developed in education. But it's still, it's still the out, outlier. Even though there are remarkable programs in interdisciplinary education, and and more and more people building their own steps, as you're you're talking about, it's still considered, eh, you yeah, you know, we, we, maybe, but <laughs> where it's pulling things together, and that's exactly the wall Campbell ran into in the '60s. Yeah. So we've kind of walked through the hero's journey here. Um, I, I sort of skipped over atonement of the father. Is there anything there that you think is worth mentioning in that step? Or is this? Oh, oh, well, oh, only, only that for me, because of my, my, my own life, this was, this may, back when I was young, this was the, perhaps the, stickiest sticking point of the of the monomyth and i realized that it was which was became psychological it was much more important for me to uh atone with my mother hmm. than my my dad she'd been very supportive of me reading and going to uh, having education and everything but it was still um the the life path across two generations that immense changes in uh, in my life from what their life had been that um it was just important to me and so i remember asking mary stewart if uh, that my teacher at the time if, if it's possible to to atone with the mother rather than the father and and she went like this i can't show it her but she clapped her hands and and brought her hands out in the air and said that is what we call an epiphany I had to go look that up, but I was, but yeah. it was epiphanic. Now I realize that. Right. And I think that it is, it is a deep underlying thing that speaks to, to people because it's something that everybody goes through. Right. And I don't, it doesn't matter if it's one parent or both parents or which one it is. Um, but, um, you and I were talking before the show, I was watching a, a nature documentary last night about big cats and you see it in nature, right? That's part of, this, um, you know, these things growing up, right, is this leopard mother has cubs. And then at some point, she stops feeding the cubs in order for them to start learning how to hunt for themselves. Um, okay, well, if they do, um, they'll survive. If they don't, they'll die. Um, but you have to think, like, if, if they had the ability to, you know, be cognizant about it, right? That cub would probably look back the one that even the one that survives, right, and say, "Well, my mom stopped feeding me." Or a bird, right? My mom kicked me out of the nest. Or you know, with with humans, right? My parents did this thing that that was traumatic, right? And trying to sort of wrestle with that and say, "How does this fit in with who I am now?" Right? Yeah. It was yeah. was this thing that happened um, something that was positive that helped me become a functional adult or was it something that inhibited me did it inhibit me because of what they did or is it just my own psychology that's inhibiting me because i have the wrong perspective of what mm -hmm. happened mm -hmm. there are so many complexities there that it is something that's very deeply rooted there, there are and and as you've been describing that <clears throat> i'm i'm and again this is a partly lived experience but you come, I think we all come at some point in our lives to realize that whether our parents are still with us or not, or one is and one isn't, um, we will never know our parents 
in the entirety of their experience. We couldn't have because they'd already had a life before we were born. Hmm. However long that life was, they had a life before we were born. And uh, and how is that all conveyed? Well, maybe there's some documentations that tell you where they lived and what they were at a particular time. The the data, so to speak. But all we have is the stories. And when you put together the sum total of the stories, which can seem like a replete collection of endless stories about families, but I think when you really start examining it, and this is the Campbellian thing. I, I know for me, when I really start examining it, my dad still will tell me stories of my mom who's been gone a while now. And But it's essentially the same limited number of stories. Once in a while, I get a new peak. Last week, I got a new peak into the story. And I thought, oh, wow, a new story about mom. And I realized thus there are probably more right. that I've, I won't I won't get to hear because I'm not asking the right questions hmm. or the memory is blurred. <clears throat> and I so what can seem like an endless body of knowledge about our parents can accordion backwards into oh yeah they're like these ten stories hmm. <laughs> that we learn as kids about them and we keep repeating them to ourselves. But what's all the stuff that we don't know? And so to atone with that, I think, is to atone with the <clears throat> the realization that you are never going to know everything and you have to accept some things as they are. And that's that super being that is the parent, male or female or both, and 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 move on. I, I've made my peace with you, with the parts of you that I knew. Hmm. There, I can't make a peace with something that I never knew. Right. So we've gone through the whole the whole story. How much of the template can change without the hero's journey becoming a different type of story? Right. Like I, I mentioned earlier in the show that um, I did a 19 minute long progressive yeah. song. Right. Yeah. So there's there's no choruses. There's no verses. It's a it essentially is a story. Um, you tell a story from beginning yeah, to indeed. end of, of very, this very right? Odyssean. So <laughs> Homeric. So that that really that breaks the template of popular song structure. There's no verses or choruses or bridges. It's just a a, a long story, ironically. <laughs> so in storytelling, um, we've gone over these 17 steps. Yeah. We know we can distill it down to four. Is there any, what would we need to do in order to escape the monomyth? Because like you said early in the story, right? Part of the criticisms of Campbell are that people say, well, you know, there's so many things that are defined. It's sort of hard to get outside of it. You know, right. is, is this really a yeah. concise definition of how stories are told around the world? Or is this just a guy that wrote so much stuff that it just sort of happens to encompass most things? So how... You're asking about the critiques of it. You're asking how, to what point does it not become that anymore? Yeah. All right. There is a book that I have yet to read, but I've been intrigued because I missed it somehow. <clears throat> that came out last year uh, by a folklorist named Maria Tatar, called "The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces." And I've read of it. There was an Atlantic magazine article, and I remember reading it last fall and then saying, yeah, that's a book i got to read, and then went off and, <laughs> and getting ready for today. That came back, and so I ordered it through the library. Uh, probably ended up buying it from my, <laughs> my own library, but <laughs> but it it is about this. It's not, a, it's not a rebuttal of the hero with a thousand faces. It is, oh, but this is not women's experience uniformly. You know, the Fa Mulan story that everyone enjoyed in Disney to, uh, is not the same hero story exactly. And you never hear, of, well, seldom hear of women knights because, of course, in a patriarchal culture, women couldn't be knights unless disguised. Right? But the things that women go through in, in Greek tragedy and, and in Shakespearean uh, plays and in in all the literary world and the stories that women have told and told and told and only now are we beginning 
well, you know, now as in the, the the past half century, really, uh, women's studies and women's literature and women's, and it's, it's all been there, hmm. uh, or the voices have been there. The ancient stories are just as ancient as any Homeric story, but we've ignored it. We've missed it. We've, we've purposely not paid attention, all of those things and more. And, 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 the, and, the, and so I don't know if she's going to go for a template of a kind, but I have a suspicion that she's going to say, there's another way that hero stories, heroine stories work. Yeah. I mentioned um, in writing my own story that, you know, I, I looked at a lot of, you know, the hero's journey and, and tried to subvert some of the tropes. And that's something that I've done. You've read, you know, the, the beginning sections of it. Yes. Um, yes. Part of what I did is I wrote, you know, as I was writing this story, I, Notice my main character was was you know this middle aged man, and I thought, does this character have to be a middle aged man? I said, what if mm-hmm. I made this character an elderly woman, right? And so, sort of the main character of my story is, is a seventy year old woman, mm-hmm. and you know uh, that creates story writing challenges in some regards, but it also opens up opportunities that aren't available through a typical story telling in other ways. And what I found is that, yeah, you can tell a very action-packed, very exciting story um, and have this 70-year-old woman main character that isn't just a token and isn't just sort of viewing things from the sideline, but is playing an integral part in all of these things that are happening, even if the people that she is um, fighting against or fighting with or what things are going on are gods, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. and it, 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 you really do. You find out um, <laughs> there's two sections to that for me. Um, and one of them is like you were saying, um, is women are not presented in stories. They're not represented in stories very well. Yeah. Um, but also, and this is, you know, part of the reason I, I've gotten into psychology and something that's interested me um, from a young age, um, the misrepresentation or the diminishment of the role elderly people can play in stories and in everyday life. And in many ways, um, I think that, you know, how elderly people are treated in society is one of the last remaining unrecognized biases, you know, um, obviously racial and and gender biases exist and are something that people are fighting uh, you know for and against on a regular basis um i think that elderly people um they're biased against but there's not really a, there's not a voice standing out for them in the world the way that there are people standing out for some of these other causes yep, yep. um so that was sort of an interesting thing to try to write into a story i think it's it's an, it's important that you've taken yourself to that place and and realize with due humility and exploration that you're in ground that is not lived experience people people you know one of those those rules of writing is to write what you know nope <laughs> Write some of what you know, but know it differently by writing freshly, <laughs> right? And then, so I mean, the Tatar in an interview apparently has said, you know, there. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but um, do credit to Campbell for what he did, but keep in mind that the hero with in the hero with a thousand faces, nine hundred and ninety nine. Of those faces are male, hmm. <laughs> and and that there are all these other ways of going through quests and being part of the quest story that are not acknowledged in that template. Yeah, and and you know not only that it's it's not reflective of of lived experience or lived history, right? Um, you know I rem- I just heard yesterday, um. Somebody refreshed my memory of, of the story of Harriet Tubman, right? Mm. And I think, wow, like this was a legitimate adventure and this mm. was a legitimate hero, mm. right? And mm-hmm. it's not the kind of person that you're going to see portrayed as the main character in your story. Right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, how, how much of this template can we change with until it's not the hero's journey? Uh, well, see, I think that that's, that's an excellent question. But I, and without being glib, I think my my... Response 
comes to this. As with so many other things that we like to silo and categorize, uh, a hero's journey, whether non-binary, male, female, doesn't matter, does it? If it's the journey <laughs> and if it's leading somewhere and things are found, I think probably the essence, maybe that those three steps or four steps, maybe that really is much more important than all these 17 sub-steps cluttering up the recipe. Maybe it is, have I been called or forced to be silent? How do I find my way to communicate despite that enforced silence? I think that, to me, in in my my learning of feminism uh, as in an academic way, and then life experience with my friends primarily being female, not exclusively, but or now trans, or all the things in between, and it calls me every single moment, every single day, if not moment, every single day, to say, wait a minute, why would I say that? Wait a minute, why would I think that? Why does it have to fit this way in order for it to still be a hero's journey? So I, I think the the fundamental. Uh, I think Tatar's book is going to be very interesting to to read. But I, but I I think even without going there, there are elements in the the monomyth as Campbell makes it to take it to a monomyth, as we talked about in the kitchen before mm-hmm. the show. Um, that says, nah, this isn't the only. Why would there have to be a single pattern? Isn't it enough to say? Wow, a lot of stories fit this. How about the stories that don't? Can they still be? And I'm saying yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that um I think that you do have to get pretty general. Um but I think that the monomyth sort of does survive um across stories um with those sort of four steps, right? An, an ordinary world, you know, an in, in initiation uh a, you know, an achievement and then a return. But I think that it doesn't necessarily have to occur in that order um, because like we talked about, life doesn't, you know, a, the, the monomyth is cyclic in real life, right? So an end of a journey can lead directly into the beginning of another journey, or we can do the steps out of order, these sorts of things. The same thing in music, right? Like songs have verses and choruses, but some songs start on a chorus, um, which is sort of, Okay, well, this, this is strange. Um, some songs don't have verses or courses, but they're still songs, right? Mm. So I think a song, if you, you look at a story or, or you know, a myth, um, I don't think that there needs, you know, you can tell them in any sort of pattern or, te- you know, there doesn't need to be, the more steps you add, the less likely the things are to fit, obviously. Um, but I think that the idea of, a pre-existing world, a challenge, an achievement, and then a post-world putting really the, are putting essential. Together are essential, and, they, and I don't think those have to be of necessity uh, gendered. Right. I, I think that fi- well, male stories are have been up to a certain point in our history, uh, much more easily accessible because they're proliferated through imperialistic culture, through patriarchal culture, all those things. But women's stories are there. Grandmother's stories are there. You know, do, do, do we ask our mothers for for the stories of, of their lives? Have there been elements that that cross the genders and the expectations? Yeah, probably. Uh, and and so I think the, the the use and the template is to realize that something we're hearing. If we sense that there's something more profound there than what we might have just thought about, well, I worked at a factory and this is what happened. Yeah, but why did that happen? And how did you face that? And those kind of questions, that's what mythologizes or lifts or or deepens uh, the ordinary stories that we hear. Yeah. So our final question, we've talked about this quite a bit, so we'll see if, if we have some fresh insights here at the end. Why does the hero's journey appeal to readers throughout the world? 
I think it's I think it's like Joseph Campbell said. There's one one of his most influential books for me was the um, the power of myth, and and he says in that book because he's talking about why this very thing does it have meaning? What is it? Uh, he, he says this is a quotation. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I'm thinking we did that podcast, right? Hmm. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that. What we're seeking is an experience of being alive. I'm stopping the quote for a minute to talk about, we, we were talking about this before the show with the various things we do artistically, right? Uh, is the experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. We can be the hero of our own story. We don't necessarily have to be, but nobody else has to recognize that because it's our inner journey that it's really about. Yeah, and that's that's extremely deep. That's that's philosophical on a, on a, <laughs> a very um, deep level because I think a lot of people do sort of say, it, "What's the meaning of life?" You know, what's this, this thing? And I I got asked that when I was the guest on a on another podcast. Hmm. Um, you know. They said, well, what would you say to people who, you know, say, why do you even bother thinking about this stuff? Like, what's what's the point, right? Yeah. And I think that people get scared or intimidated when they start thinking about the meaning of life because um, not only is there um, not a clear answer, but the, the one emerging answer that seems to be the loom large is that there isn't any meaning, right? Um if you take what we know about the universe and what we know about ourselves and all these things, there doesn't appear to be a clear meeting. And so Camp Campbell addresses that in that quote, right? Is he looks at it, he says, it's not about what the meaning of life is. It's about the experience of being alive, yep. which is, I mean, that's wild, right? I've, if you're sitting there at home and of course, there's always the philosophical question of if there's anybody out there besides me, right? Maybe this is just a simulation. Right? <laughs> Who knows? But if I'm assuming that all of you at home have the same rich inner experience that I have, that seems to be the one thing that that does um, resonate is not so much the meaning, right? I, someday I'm going to die. And even if I had children, someday my, my children would die. Someday my line would come to an end. Someday the whole human race comes to an end, right? So what is the meaning of all of that? Mm, you know, you can't say that, but you can look at it and say, in this material plane, in this physical realm, living my day-to-day -day life, having the experiences that I have externally and internally, um, capturing that moment of feeling alive, right? And it's not there all the time, despite the fact nope. that we are alive all the time. Nope. But you have those moments and you capture those moments. Um and and some of us are are, you know that it's an active pursuit. This this sort of you know idea of I've felt this before, and I want to, I want to find that again, of of living these experiences. Right? He calls it feeling rapture. Yeah, which I mean is a very different word than people use sometimes. But he said we're engaged in doing things to achieve outer purposes, to achieve purposes of outer value that we forget, the inner value. Hmm. And, and the rapture that is associated with being alive is what that is all about, is experiencing the inner value. And he says often that's through creativity. Often that's through silencing yourself, removing it in a different part of the book. He says you, you ought to have a moment sometime in any given day when you seclude yourself and you allow yourself to forget what people owe you, what you owe people, how many things you've got to do tomorrow and all those things. And you sit there and you've, and you just encounter that creative thing inside. And I think you do that. I think that that, uh, that a lot of people have that within them. They don't necessarily make the time for it. Or, or circumstances seem overwhelming. And how can they make the time for it? When, when it should be one of those things that everyone is encouraged to do, even if that means uh, maybe you work 38 hours a week instead of 40, because, you know, those were the 40 hour was not handed down on an iron or stone tablet anywhere either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this has been a, a, a fun discussion because, um, 
you know, it's like they usually are. Um, it went to a lot of different places and it was, it was real messy, but I think that it, it did sort of stick with, with Campbell himself, right? You, you can sense throughout it, um, the interdisciplinary nature of the monomyth and, you know, the religious and, and spiritual, there we are back to the couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the things that just sort of uniquely make us human and how that relates to not just everyday experiences, but also the fringes of scientific knowledge and what we know and, you know, personal creativity and, and how we approach everything. The, you know, this this idea of, of mythology and of storytelling is is built right into the the fabric of who we are and, and that lived experience that they Campbell um, espouse so highly. So I'm sure we're going to have more discussions on storytelling as we go along. But until next time, keep on.